a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. I am so glad that you could join us today. On tap, we have a number of different things to discuss. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit about cancel culture today. John Miltimore has a terrific article on how Sweden which is being looked at as a country with some suspicion by other countries, managed to flatten the curve very effectively when it came to COVID-19. Why were they able to succeed when New York failed so miserably? Well, it has little to do with lockdowns, but I've got a great story to share with you about that. Also, New York Times is claiming churches rather than rioters have contributed to the rise in positive COVID-19 tests. And if you are looking for a way to de-stress yourself, maybe get a little less contention in your life. We're going to talk about why it's so important to depoliticize your life. Because we all know it's super easy to find yourself in an argument. You don't even have to try. All you have to do is just make an observation. Anything. It could be something tame. You know, puppies are cute. <laughs> and the cat lovers will take you to task. Let's start with cancel culture. I've been sitting on this for a couple of days. It's an article from Richard Ebling. He uh, writes for the Future of Freedom Foundation, among others. This one was published on the American Institute for Economic Research. And it's a call to save America from cancel culture. Now, I will include this in the show notes, which you can access either at LovingLiberty.net or at my new website, TheBrianHydeShow.com. So you got a couple of options here. Let's talk about this. Richard Ebling is, is a very gifted professor, a very gifted writer. So when I tell you that his essays take a little bit of time to digest, I mean, he's thorough. And I don't want you to to feel like, oh, boy, this is going to be an all day thing. It's, It's just he's very good at setting up the historical background, giving the principles that are at stake. I think the thing I love most about his writing is it's almost entirely devoid in fact, it, it's really, it's, it's very objective. It's, there's, there's no partisan slant, and the Republicans are going to ride to the rescue, or the Democrats are the source of all evil. He understands it in the terms that the, the conflict is really framed, which is the collective seeking always to impose its will upon the individual at the cost of your individual rights. So he says, one of the new fashionable phrases has become cancel culture, which is the idea that Ideas, institutions, and people of the present as well as of the past must be overturned and dethroned from legitimacy and acceptance in society so as to expunge the injustices, the cruelties, and insensitivities existing in current life and lingering over from history. But he says the question is, what exactly is the culture in America that is to be canceled? And this is the question of the day. Do we have to reject everything that came before us? Because Richard Ebling makes a very brilliant case that uh, our ideal of a free society and the the free self-governing system of governance that we set up, these are actually great blessings. And the history and memory of America, you know, it's we're dealing with human beings, so we're not without our, our dark spots in our history and mistakes that have been made. 
But if you do not understand what exactly we have enjoyed, which in the history of humanity has been extremely rare, you might be a little more tempted to, to junk it in the name of some perceived social justice. Richard Ebling says elements of the cancel culture mindset and movement have been seen in tearing down of statues, demands for removing from buildings and other monuments, the names and imageries of various people, and the ostracizing of certain individuals, living or dead, who are accused of and condemned for racist, sexist, and other politically incorrect words or deeds at any time during their life. Now, white racists of the past used to say that one drop of black blood disqualified any person from having status as a member of the, quote, superior white race, and instead relegated you to the lower category of being an inferior being. Ebling says, now we see another variation on the same type of theme. One word or deed, no matter how innocent or innocuous, no matter how long ago or in the context of an earlier, less, quote, enlightened time, no matter how much of a higher consciousness you have had since, or how publicly apologetic you may be for that, quote, sin of the past, none of this can save you from banishment, seemingly for all time, from good, woke society. You are cast out to nether regions of the human existence, erased from the record of humankind, and all because everything American, past and present, should be seen as the essence of all things evil and immoral, because what the country has stood for and done represents the worst in human history. That sound about right? I'll tell you, it's it, this is the mindset that has taken hold in corporate America. It's the mindset that has taken hold in the press and much of the mass media. And it, it requires this willful blindness to be able to see things in context, or at least to be able to recognize the people who came before us certainly had their blind spots. And there were some things that they were blind to that we sit back and look with incredulity and just say, what? How could they have missed this? But I promise you, I absolutely guarantee we have similar blind spots, maybe bigger in some respects than theirs, that others will look at us one day, 100 years from now, 500 years from now, and ask, what were they thinking? How could they not have seen this? The point is, it's not to excuse things that are wrong. It's to recognize that we make mistakes. The best you can do is own up to them. Do your best to correct them and then move on. In this essay, Richard Ebling talks about the racial bigotries and, and cruelties of the past. And they're real. There are real, honest to goodness things that, that make you just go, really? People actually thought that way at one time. And they did. In many cases, they did. It was a widely held belief that uh, the Chinese were less than human. And that's why in building the railroads, you know, people had no problem with, you know, throwing, you know, their lives away. Whoops, well, we blew up a few when we were making the tunnel, but, <laughs> you know, you throw enough people at it, you don't care about it, you can sure get a lot of stuff done. Yes, that was a mindset that once held sway. But to understand that mindset and understand the, the consciousness and that evolving uh standard within society, you have to understand that America is an ideal of liberty in progress, meaning the founding generation, okay, slavery was a part of their world. But at the same time, there were those among them who recognized this is an injustice. And while they may not have had the consensus among society at that time to make the change, 
In other words, their society wasn't as woke as we. (laughs) I still think they were better off in many ways, character-wise, but that's another story. They set the stage for problems like slavery, for problems like women's suffrage, to be resolved. Richard Ebling says the cancel culture proponents, and certainly the more activist and radical among them, would insist that the episodes of earlier bad attitudes or racism in American history tell us all we need to know about America, and that the America of the mid-19th and early 20th centuries, about which historian John B. McMaster and essayist Albert J. Nock wrote, is the same America today. But he says, I would beg to differ. Is that what American culture is and has always been about? He says, if it was, let me suggest that we would not have seen the improvements in racial and social circumstances and conditions that have happened over the last century. For instance, segregation laws are long gone. And if anything, laws have been introduced to impose and police compulsory integration under federal anti-discrimination laws. Employments, professions, and occupations that had long been reserved for whites only went out with the Jim Crow statutes in the South And to the extent that social distancing was practiced by many whites due to personal and peer pressure prejudices, over the last half century, these have radically disappeared in an amazing array of social and interpersonal settings. He says the civil liberties expressed in the Bill of Rights no longer apply to some while not to others. Where violations, abuses, and any other willful acts may occur, legal defenses, advocacy groups, general public opinion in the age of mass and social media will try to limit or at least turn a bright light onto such conduct in most instances today. And pressures are made for the introduction of reforms that would make such behavior less frequent, if not impossible, and not to go unpunished. The key thing is, what makes those improvements possible are the moral principles upon which any good and decent society can and should be based. And he says, in essence, liberty is a single tapestry of civil and economic liberty. And he does a brilliant defense on this. Talks about the value of being self-governing Americans. Talks about America as the liberal ideal of a free society. And how cancel culture is setting out to destroy America's memory and hope. Like I say, it's a lengthy essay. But it's a very powerful case why all possible effort must be made to resist and rationally respond to a cancel culture that would erase the history and memory of America from the minds of humankind. We've contributed a lot of good to the world, and there's a lot of good that could yet be contributed if we are willing to preserve it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am so glad you could join me. Open lines coming up in the next hour of the program. I hope you'll join us then and have a chance to sound off on things that matter to you. Let's take a moment to talk about the free market And why the free market is a source of goodness and prosperity. You know, there's a lot of, uh, well, there's a lot of in-the-streets violence right now about how we've got to tear down capitalism. We've got to get rid of all these vestiges of the free market because, uh, well, I guess in the minds of those who are doing the protesting and the destruction, the evidence in their minds adds up to the free market is the reason for all of the injustice that they see in the world. Environmental injustice, social injustice, injustice, blah, blah, blah. It's everywhere. 
So where can you look? If you were someone who was, let's just say, inclined to try to defend the free market, where would you look to do that? Art Carden, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has a great piece called Extend the Market as Far as Possible. And I think he's got a great example here of how the free market works and why it's worth defending. He says, at first glance, the package on the step looked like it contained two or three rolls of paper towels. It's too small to be paper towels, I thought. I picked it up. Well, it's definitely too heavy to be paper towels. I looked at the return address, and in any event, I doubt we're buying paper towels in small quantities from Turkey. So he brought the package inside, and as his wife's name was on the label, set it on the dining room table to await her attention. She got home, opened the package, and showed us another new rug she had bought from a Turkish seller on Etsy as part of an ongoing interior redesign. The country of origin caught his eye, and he says, I've noticed that a lot of people on Chess24.com, the chess website I joined a few weeks ago, are from Turkey. In the search for big, dramatic solutions to major problems, he says it's actually easy to overlook the mundane and hard-to-notice accretion of innovations that together are actually making poverty history. Now, Art Carden reminds us, Adam Smith famously pointed out the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. And innovative e-commerce platforms like Etsy, Amazon, and eBay are making their mark by extending the market. Etsy, in this case, is bringing Turkish rugs within our easy reach. Importantly, Etsy is bringing money within easier reach of producers in another part of the world. Now, Mr. Carden says he specializes in economics articles. Turkish producers specialize in rugs. The world gets more of both. Of course, he says, I doubt that many people making rugs in Turkey care to read my articles or listen to my lectures. They may want chess lessons instead, and I'm not anywhere near strong enough as a player to offer them. Money solves the problem by serving as a medium of exchange. He says, my students and readers get economic analysis, I get rugs, Turkish rug manufacturers get chess lessons, and the opportunity to play Grandmasters on Chess 24. And he notes he just challenged GM, that's a Grandmaster Jan Gustafsson, in a banter blitz in another window. But he says, I'm not optimistic about my chances. Bottom line is, Art Carden says, we get a little more of the things that make our lives better. Importantly, they're things that make our lives better as tested against our willingness to pay with the fruits of our labor rather than as determined by some panel of experts who know what's best for us. But I digress. He says, as M. Todd Henderson and Salem Churi explain in The Trust Revolution, eBay and Etsy are also providing what they call micro-regulation. We could probably take the case to court if we thought we were ripped off by an eBay or Etsy seller, but it's almost certainly not worth hiring a lawyer over a few dozen or even a few hundred dollars. eBay and Etsy provide us with transparent information about sellers in their rating systems and quick and easy dispute resolution when things go awry. He says, just a few days ago, I made an errant Xbox purchase and was able to get a refund quickly and easily without having to enlist the government's help. The private sector governs imperfectly. Now, he says, I've had a couple of online transactions go badly wrong, but it governs pretty well. Online trade in handmade goods from around the world raises the uncomfortable possibility that we're buying goods being made by children or slaves working in inhumane conditions. Etsy, again, has a brand name to protect and prohibits products made with child labor or involuntary labor, as they explain in their ethical expectations. Again, their system is not perfect, but no system is or ever will be in a world of almost 8 billion people with different ideas, beliefs, and ethics. 
He says, I suspect, moreover, they are keen to improve it. 100 years ago, John Maynard Keynes wrote this in The Economic Consequences of the Peace. Quote, the inhabitant of London could order by telephone, sipping his morning tea in bed, the various products of the whole earth in such quantity as he might see fit and reasonably expect the, their early delivery upon his doorstep. He could at the same moment and by the same means adventure his wealth in the natural resources and new enterprises of any quarter of the world and share without exertion or even trouble in their prospective fruits and advantages. Or he could decide to couple the security of his fortunes with the good faith of the townspeople of any substantial municipality in any continent that fancy or information might recommend. He could secure forthwith, if he wished, cheap and comfortable means of transit to any country or climate without passport or other formality. Well, okay, not in 2020. He could dispatch his servant to a neighboring office of a bank for such supply of the precious metals as might seem convenient, and then proceed proceed abroad to foreign quarters without knowledge of their religion, language, or customs, bearing coined wealth upon his person, and would consider himself greatly aggrieved and much surprised at the least interference. But most important of all, he regarded this state of affairs as normal, certain, and permanent, except in the direction of further improvement and any deviation from it as aberrant, scandalous, and avoidable. End quote. That's quite a remarkable quote, especially from John Maynard, Maynard Keynes, who uh, I'm not a fan of. <laughs> Since we live under Keynesian economics, I'm not a big fan of his, but it's a great observation. The point here, Art Carden says, is even in 1920, it wasn't a government mainly that made this possible. And the likelihood that you were ordering or commanding the fruits of exploitation and tyranny was almost certainly much higher than it is right now. How much more normal, certain, and permanent is this state of affairs today? And how much more aberrant, scandalous, and avoidable are its abuses? Private enterprise and private governance pushed along by people seeking little more than their own advantages work remarkably well. If you want evidence, he says, look no further than the package on your doorstep. I do love a good object lesson, and I think that this may be one of the great object lessons of our time. Capitalism works, and I mean real capitalism in the sense of free market capitalism, not crony capitalism where those who have the capital, you know, the laws tend to favor them over others. That's the perversion. That's what we're supposed to believe is, you know, supposed to represent the free market. It doesn't. You let people make their own decisions, control their own property, and remarkable things happen. I love that uh, Art Carden referenced Adam Smith early on. And I know some people say, well, we've outgrown Adam Smith, you know, his inquiry into the wealth of nations, his thoughts about the invisible hand that guides the affairs of men in which each person makes their decisions and makes their choices based on what is advantageous to them. And that doesn't necessarily mean at the expense of other people. That's the gospel of envy. That's the, that's the gospel of socialism and collectivism. Well, if something good happens to you, then that means that something good cannot happen to me. Under free market principles, no. There's more than enough good that can happen for all of us if you're willing to create value. I'll have to see if I can find it, and if I can, I'll include it in the show notes along with this article from Art Carden. There was an excellent podcast featuring T.K. Coleman from the Foundation for Economic Education. And T.K. is a remarkable human being, by any measure. 
but he is particularly adept at explaining how to be entrepreneur-minded, how to think in the sense that you are looking actively for ways to create value for other people. And if you want to make money, T.K. Coleman says, that's what you have to do. You have to be willing to create value for other people. Yes, it serves your self-interest. Maybe you're going to get big, fat stacks of Benjamins, and you're going to get rich as can be. But before you can enjoy the fruits of those labors, you got to figure out what is it that would cause, that would create value for others, and then deliver on that. In an essence, in essence, that's that's what the free market is: meeting one another's needs. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Welcome to The Brian Hyde Show. By the way, it's going to sound like I'm bragging, so I'll try to make it a humble brag at best. I have a website, and I would encourage you, please, please check it out, thebrianhydeshow.com. I know, I tried to keep it as simple as possible. Something that I am adding, and uh, it's, it's still a work in progress, but I will be updating and keeping you informed with uh, a page that's specifically devoted to resources. And it's the idea here is, look, nourish your mind with something other than the, the fear and the anger that is being given to you by most mainstream media sources. There are a number of different resources that I access on any given day. Many of them I have subscribed to, and so this stuff just automatically lands in my email inbox. But I'm going to share with you some of the different resources, some of the different writers, the different websites, the, the news aggregators that I visit on a daily basis as I'm looking for good, solid, relevant information that uh, can help us better understand what's going on in the world around us. And I do this not because, you know, I have all the answers. Clearly, I don't. But I want to point you towards sources that I have found especially helpful in understanding what's happening and, you know, just some good alternative takes None of this implies that, uh, you know, by clicking on this link, you say that you agree with everything that I tell you. You don't have to do that. But I would really encourage you, if you've got the opportunity, um, take a look, see if there's something there that's of value for you. And, uh, you know, you'll find that a lot of these, uh, they're not, it's, I'm going to offend some people by saying it's not Alex Jones. (laughs) It's not necessarily, you know, InfoWars, but you can find good information there as well. This is just primarily information that uh, that will give you a little bit better slant on what's happening. That's all. That's my goal. I don't want you to, to think just like me. I don't want you to feel like, you know, you have to agree with, with everything I say. You don't. Just want you to know that uh, there, there are some other ways to look at things. Case in point. Here's a terrific article from the Foundation for Economic Education. This is from John Miltimore. Why Sweden succeeded in flattening the curve and New York failed. Why is this important? Well, in part because we have a lot of people pushing, and particularly people in public positions, you know, politicians and the like, pushing for increased lockdowns. We've got to lock this down. We've got to lock it down tight. We've got to lock it down like never before. It's like the control, control, control. That's the only thing that they can think in terms of when it comes to addressing uh, COVID-19. 
but they're missing a lot of very important things like, you know, what? Okay, so case numbers or at least confirmed cases, in other words, positive tests may be going up. What about the death rate? Why is the death rate so low? And shouldn't we be more concerned about that? Nope, nope, nope. We're concerned. We want to stop. Well, I'm I'm going to get off on a tangent here. I want to go back to John Milton Moore's article. Sweden succeeded in flattening the curve. New York failed. And it probably has little to do with lockdowns. John Miltimore says coronavirus deaths slowed to a crawl in Sweden. With the exception of a single death on July 13th, no deaths in this nation of 10 million have been reported since July 10th. Would you not say that's newsworthy? All right. He says, but the debate over Sweden's approach to the COVID-19 pandemic, which relied on individual responsibility instead of government coercion to maintain social distancing, that's far from over. Last week, the New York Times labeled Sweden's approach to the pandemic a cautionary tale for the rest of the world, claiming it yielded a surge of deaths without sparing its economy from damage. Now, to be accurate, Miltimore points out Sweden has outperformed many nations around the world with its lighter touch approach. In fact, it was one of the very few nations in Europe to see its economy grow in the first quarter of 2020. Meanwhile, Anders Tegnell, Sweden's top infectious disease expert, continues to defend his nation's approach to the pandemic. Tegnell, in a recent podcast published by Swedish Public Radio, said, I have, I'm looking forward to a more serious evaluation of our work than has been made so far. There is no way of knowing how this ends. Now, Sweden's been a global lightning rod, but this has less to do with the results of its policies than the nature of its policies. So while Sweden's death toll is indeed substantially higher than neighbors like Finland, Norway, and Denmark, it's also much lower than several other European neighbors like Belgium, the United Kingdom, Italy, and Spain. In fact, John Miltimore points out a simple comparison between Belgium and Sweden, nations with rather similar populations, reveals that Belgium suffered far worse than Sweden from the coronavirus. And by the way, he's not just saying, take my word for it. He has the charts showing this. The reason Sweden is a cautionary tale, according to the New York Times, and Belgium is not, is because Belgium followed this script. Early in the pandemic, Belgian officials closed all non-essential businesses. They enforced strict social distancing rules. All non-emergency workers were told to stay home. Shopping was limited to a single family member. Individuals could leave for medical reasons or to walk a pet or get a brief bit of exercise, so long as social distancing was maintained. And these lockdown protocols, according to the BBC, were strictly enforced by Belgian police using drones in parks and fines for anyone breaking social distancing rules. Now, if you want to hear a more suitable cautionary tale, Sweden clearly endured the pandemic better than Belgium, which had nearly twice as many COVID-19 deaths despite its economic lockdown. Yet the Times chose Sweden as its cautionary tale, because Sweden chose not to institute an economic lockdown. Sweden took such an approach for two reasons. First, as Tegnell has publicly stated, there is little to no scientific evidence that lockdowns work. Second, as evidence today shows, lockdowns come with widespread unintended consequences. Mass unemployment, recession, social unrest, psychological deterioration, suicides, and drug overdoses. Even if Sweden had seen its death toll rise sharply, or more sharply than Scandinavian neighbors like Finland or Norway, it's strange that the Times would go thousands of miles across an ocean and continent to find a cautionary tale. And the reason for that, John Miltimore says, is because a far better cautionary tale can be found right under the great lady's nose. 
A simple comparison between New York and Sweden shows the Empire State has suffered far worse from COVID-19 than the Swedes. Yinan Weiss, an entrepreneur and founder of Rally Point, recently compared Sweden and New York using data from the COVID tracking project. And the first thing that one notices about the comparison is that Sweden was able to flatten the curve, so to speak. And by the way, the, the chart that they show is undeniable. Though the phrase is largely forgotten today, remember flattening the curve was originally the entire purpose for these lockdowns to the extent that there was a scientific basis for lockdowns. It was the idea that they were a temporary measure designed to help hospitals avoid being overwhelmed by sick patients. Dr. Robert Katz, founding director of the Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, observed that by flattening the curve, you don't prevent deaths, you just change the dates. But a temporary lockdown could at least prevent everyone from getting sick at once, which would be catastrophic. So if flattening the curve was the primary goal of policymakers, Sweden was largely a success. New York, on the other hand, was not, despite widespread closures and strict enforcement of social distancing policies. Now, John Miltimore points out the reason that New York failed and Sweden succeeded probably has relatively little to do with the fact that bars and restaurants were open in Sweden or that New York schools were closed while Sweden's were open. As Weiss explains, the difference probably isn't related to lockdowns at all. It probably has much more to do with the fact that New York failed to protect the most at-risk populations, the elderly and the infirm. Weiss says, here's the good news. You can shut down businesses or keep them open, close schools or stay in session, wear masks or not. The virus will make its way through in either case, and if we protect the elderly, then deaths will be spared. Now, that's precisely the prescription Dr. John Ioannidis, a Stanford University epidemiologist and one of the most cited scientists in the world, has advocated since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Like Tegnell, Ioannidis expressed early on doubts about the effectiveness of lockdowns and warned they could produce wide-ranging unintended outcomes. Ioannidis wrote in a stat article in March, one of the bottom lines is that we don't know how long social distancing measures and lockdowns can be maintained without major consequences to the economy, society, and mental health. He wrote unpredictable evolutions may ensue, including financial crisis, unrest, civil strife, war, and a meltdown of the social fabric. Gee, I don't know. Do you think he was right? Seems to me he was pretty accurate here. Sadly, as many of the adverse consequences Ioannidis predicted have since come to pass, and he's acknowledged this. So, is Sweden truly a cautionary tale? John Miltimore says, Tegnell and Swedish leaders have mostly stood by their lighter-touch approach, although there is a recognition that they, too, could have more effectively protected at-risk populations. Sweden's Prime Minister, Stefan Löfven, said, we must admit that part the, the part that deals with elderly care in terms of the spread of infection has not worked. It's obvious we have too many elderly people who passed away. Yet John Miltimore points out it's a mistake to label Sweden's approach a failure. As noted above, Sweden's criticized less because of the results of their public health policies and more because of the nature of them. There's more to this article. I'm going to come back. We'll finish it up just the other side of these commercial messages. I don't know what more it would take to convince people that perhaps there's a better way, but I think this is some pretty strong ammunition. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. 
All right, we are back. Once again, I'm sharing with you an article from the Foundation for Economic Education. This is from John Miltimore. One of the best resources I have found during this whole COVID-19 affair in that uh, he has put particular focus on following what has been going on in nations like Sweden and others that have taken a lighter touch, a less authoritarian lockdown approach. And the results seem to speak for themselves. I will have a link to his article. It will be in the show notes, which you can access either at LovingLiberty.net or you can go to my webpage, TheBrianHydeShow.com, and I'll have show notes for you there, as well as a nice page of resources that you can access to, uh, to check out some of the resources that I use day to day as I'm doing show prep. John Miltimore says, by embracing a much more market-based approach to the pandemic in lieu of a centrally planned one, Sweden is undermining the narrative that millions and millions of people would have died without lockdowns, as modelers predicted. Without Sweden and a few similar outliers, it would be far easier for central planners to say, sure, lockdowns were harsh and destructive, but we had no choice. John Miltimore says, in the wake of the most destructive pandemic in a century, there will be considerable discussion as to whether the lockdowns, which stand to trigger a global depression in addition to other psychological and social costs, were ever truly necessary. In a sense, the disagreement over the pandemic largely resembles a much larger friction in society. Should individuals be left, to pers- left free to pursue their own interests and weigh risks themselves, or should they be guided, coerced, and protected by planners who want to do this all for them. Bam. That's it. Right there. And Miltimore says, as Ludwig von Mises noted long ago, modern social conflict is largely a struggle over who gets to design the world, individuals or authorities. Mises saw a few things more dangerous than central planners seeking to supplant the plans of individuals with plans of their own, which they see as a preeminent good. It was partly for this reason Mises saw market economies as superior to command economies. Mises wrote in Socialism and Economic and Sociological Analysis, whatever people do in the market economy is the execution of their own plans. In this sense, every human action means planning. What those calling themselves planners advocate is not the substitution of planned action for letting things go. It's the substitution of the planner's own plan for the plans of his fellow men. The planner is a potential dictator who wants to deprive all other people of the power to plan and act according to their own plans. He aims at one thing only, the exclusive absolute preeminence of his own plan. So when Mises speaks of the preeminence of his own plan, it's hard not to think of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo who in March sounded downright indignant when a reporter asked about nursing homes objecting to his plan of prohibiting them from screening for COVID-19. They don't have the right to object, Cuomo answered. That is the rule, and that is the regulation, and they have to comply with it. Now, Cuomo clearly saw his central plan as superior to that of individuals acting within the marketplace. But this policy of forcing nursing homes to take COVID-carrying patients, which was adopted by numerous U.S. states with high death tolls, is a stark contrast to Sweden's market-based approach that trusted individuals to plan for themselves. Hawken Samuelson, the CEO of Volvo Cars, observed in April, our, our measures are all based on individuals taking responsibility, and that is an important part of the Swedish model. 
John Miltimore says Sweden's approach of encouraging social distancing by giving responsibility to individuals may very well explain why the Swedes fared so much better than New York, where where authorities disempowered individual actors and prevented nursing homes from taking sensible precautions. It's almost absurd to look at New York's pandemic plan and declare it superior to Sweden's, yet many in the intellectual class will continue to hammer away at Sweden while ignoring the catastrophic numbers in New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and other states. As John Miltimore says, this likely would have been no surprise to Mises. As he pointed out, the central planner is primarily concerned with a single factor, the preeminence of his own plan. Once this truth is understood, one can finally understand the drumbeat of criticism against Sweden. Amen, brother. Absolutely. It shows the folly of the central planners, whether it's Andrew Cuomo, whether it's my own governor, Gary Herbert, whomever it may be. They do not like that there is a there is an alternative to what they say must be done. It's their way or the highway. And unfortunately, we're not being given much of a choice. All right, let's take a moment here and switch gears and talk about depoliticizing your life. I know you're listening to something right now that you're like, what, really? (laughs) This is what you call depoliticizing. But I just want you to ask me, you know, is it more difficult now to go about our day to day lives without having to walk on eggshells? I mean, what starts as a simple exchange on social media can quickly turn into, you know, friendship ending arguments, family banishing you and so forth. And I'm, you know, I'm no stranger to controversy. I mean, as a commentator, It's actually my job to speak out or to write about timely topics, hopefully in a way that holds the attention of my audience. But even during those times when I'm not writing or broadcasting or podcasting, I still get a strong sense from some people that, you know, you need to live your life as a political statement. I think back to about a year ago, I gave a friend a ride to the hospital where his wife had been staying with their infant daughter. On the way there, his wife said, hey, could you please bring me some food? Now, she requested Chick-fil-A, and we joked around as we sat in the drive-thru about, "Ah, we're picking up some hate chicken. You know, we're less than woke because we're getting Chick-fil-A rather than boycotting them. And that's because Chick-fil-A is considered by some to be the embodiment of intolerance, not because of any overt act of hatred or animosity toward any specific person or even group, but simply because Chick-fil-A has, in the opinion of some, failed to be sufficiently supportive of LGBT activism. Dan Cathy, the founder of the restaurant, simply refuses to reject traditional mores and to fly the rainbow flag instead. Now, in a less woke time, that would just amount to a simple difference of opinion. Everybody would understand. We don't all have to agree in order to get along. But in our increasingly politicized climate, Just simply disagreeing is an invitation to be treated as a traitor to the human race. Don't believe me? Just say these words. All lives matter. And watch heads spin and and steam shoot from their ears. Activists have relentlessly decried Chick-fil-A, for instance, as worthy of boycotts or protests, even as that restaurant has seen its uh, revenues and market shares continue to dominate other fast food chains. I mean, the city of San Antonio actually went so far as to officially ban Chick-fil-A from their airport a very public act of discrimination to show us what real tolerance is all about. (laughs) Well, do we really have to remind ourselves that the reason this restaurant franchise was created in the first place was to feed people and to grow a business? In other words, Dan Cathy didn't found it to become a political machine that dispenses what some critics call hate chicken six days a week. 
Judging by the number of corporations who are more than happy to fly the rainbow flag during the observance of Pride Month, it's pretty safe to say that lack of acceptance is really not much of an issue these days. So whether this is being done for the sake of pandering or virtue signaling or just simply uh, not wanting to be denounced like Chick-fil-A, that's not the point. The point is that even these companies face potential backlash for not publicly taking a stand during a highly polarized time. So let's translate that to you and me. How many of our decisions that we make in an average day are made on the basis of how it reflects our political stances? Now, before you answer that, Think about how many controversies seem to arise because of a perceived difference in political beliefs. For instance, do you drive only a certain kind of car because it reflects where you stand? We all know people who only drive American-made automobiles or green vehicles or cars made by manufacturers that didn't take bailout money or tried to cheat on emissions tests. When you shop for groceries, do you spend time looking for foods made with non-GMO vegetables and grains or free-range meats or humanely raised egg and dairy products? Your clothing, does it come from non-sweatshop manufacturers? Does the maker support gun control or utilize images like the American flag that could be offensive to some? I mean, you see my point. It's possible to make the case, I guess, that this is all part of being an informed consumer, but more often than not, it comes down to choosing to be upset over things that really don't have any kind of lasting impact on our lives. Just a little more evidence of the power of politics to poison everything it touches. Things that are politicized predictably turn into power struggles. That's because the very nature of politics is to pit us against one another in a contest to see who gets to tell the other what to do. The more areas of our lives we allow to become infected with politics, the more each of us will find opportunity for conflict and anger. And I ask you to consider, and I'm asking this in all sincerity, how does that improve the world in any measurable way? It seems like if we train ourselves to look for contention at every turn, we're helping to create it. Now, inoculating ourselves against senseless friction starts with clearly knowing what we stand for. People who know what they stand for don't need to bend other people to their viewpoint, and they don't need to walk on eggshells. And they're the kind of people who get a lot more satisfaction from building than they do from simply tearing down. So there's the challenge before us. Would you rather be known by your principles and what you stand for, or would you rather be known by who or what you're ostensibly against? This is The Brian Hyde Show.